Well, welcome everyone to uh, tonight's webinar with uh, Chris Bowen to discuss his fabulous book, Labour People. Uh, can I acknowledge that I'm uh, joining you from the traditional lands of the Ngunnawal people, Dara Nuna, Dara Ngunnawal, Yungu, Nalamanyan, Dunimanyan, Ngunnawal Wari, Dara Wari, Dindi, Wangaralinjinyan and pay respects to any Indigenous people on the conversation tonight. Uh, I'm sure there'll be others joining the conversation as we go and others listening to the conversation in recorded form. Uh, so let me uh, crack into it. Uh, Chris, it is a uh, timely moment to be talking about Labor history uh, as it is the uh, 46th anniversary of the dismissal of the, Whit uh, the Whitlam government. And uh, we'll come to uh, your observations on one of those Whitlam ministers now, uh, but uh, this is a, a remarkable and quite an unusual book, choosing to tell stories not of the most prominent Labor people, but of some of the unknown ones. What prompted you to write it this way? Well, Andrew, um, it's a book that's been um, floating around in my head for many years um, as a concept, and it's driven by that very point that, you know, the bookshelves are uh, dominated by um, histories of and biographies of the big figures of prime ministers and dominant personalities. That's true of all politics and all political parties, but I think, frankly, it's more true of our party because we have such big personalities, from Fisher and Watson, even Hughes, um, uh, through to, you know, the obvious uh, big personalities of Goff and Bob and Paul and, and, and so on. But, of course, our history is so much richer than that. So I wanted to take some stories of people who have been largely forgotten or underestimated or, or underappreciated and almost, or re rehabilitate them, not that they need rehabilitation because they've been disgraced, but, but really bring them to light again. And obviously it was difficult to choose the six because I had to make the book not too long. Um, and I could have written, you know, 12 or 15 very easily. I kept going down rabbit holes when I was researching and finding new names. But um, those six are really, I think, you know, in my mind, representative of, of the thousands of people who've made a contribution to our movement over the last uh, you know, 121 years at the federal level. Um, and, um, you know, representative of, of the broad people who've made Labor, the Labor movement work. It's not just the leaders and the prime ministers who've made the Labor movement what it is. And Graham Freudenberg uh, coined a phrase which has always stuck with me, that the Labor Party is a collective memory in action. Well, it's a collective memory of all of us. That's the, that's the, that's the definition of collective, uh, including the six figures that um, I chose to write about in Labor People. So let's crack into the first of them. Uh, Gregor McGregor, Labor's first deputy leader. And the bloke was blind from a logging accident. Yet, as you say, this didn't hold him back in his speeches. In fact, if anything, it seemed to be a, quite, a, quite a quality in the, spe in the speeches. Yeah, yeah, it's pro probably not in spite of being blind, he was a great speaker. It was probably because in part of being blind, he was a great speaker. He was extraordinarily well read. Um, so, Gregor McGregor was our first deputy leader. He was deputy leader by virtue of being leader in the Senate. The rules of the caucus at that point were that the leader in the Senate was automatically the deputy leader of the party. So, he was in effect deputy prime minister in the Watson and Fisher governments, although the office of deputy prime minister didn't formally exist, of course, at that point. But he was the second, but very much the second man in the government. 
Uh, he'd been a, he was a gardener's labourer and a branch had fallen on him. Ironically, um, he was a gardener in the estate of Sir Richard uh, Baker, who he went on to serve in the Senate with many years later. And as I write in the book, it's not known whether they ever talked about politics. Sir Richard was an ardent conservative and McGregor entered the Labour Party, of course. Um, but he was a, a, quite a spellbinding speaker by all accounts. Of course, no recordings exist, but... Uh, you know, a deacon and, and many of his opponents recorded just what an effective speaker he was in Parliament, in the Senate, and, and the Hansard, from what you can glean, does does give you a flavour of that. Uh, of course, in the South Australian Parliament first, in the Legislative Council in South Australia, and he voted on the most, what I regard as the most important progressive legislation ever passed by an Australian jurisdiction, uh, votes for women uh, by the South Australian legislature. He voted in favour of that, as did all the Labor Party uh, members. Um, but by the time he became deputy leader, he'd gone completely blind. The accident, he'd, a, a branch had fallen on his face, which had damaged his, his, his eyesight. But um, it had gotten worse, and presumably had cataracts and other things as well, which weren't treatable at that time. Uh, I, this, this occurs to me because you might recall when... Senator Steelejohn, the Green Senator, became a senator. He claimed to be the first disabled person ever to enter Parliament. I, I thought at the time, well, I served with Graham Edwards, who had his legs blown off in Vietnam, uh, and there was a whole range of World War Two veterans who were very badly disfigured, um, and I'm sure there were others. And then I discovered um, uh, Gregor McGregor, who was totally and completely blind. Um, fascinating figure, fascinating figure. Do you think you give better speeches when you don't have your notes? And, and did researching him make you uh, more inclined to throw away the notes when you're speaking in Parliament? I, I think I do give... I think m m many of us give better speeches without notes if we can't... Like, you know, some people need notes. Um, sometimes in Parliament, um, the best speech you give is the one you, you are giving by surprise. You know, you weren't expecting to have to give. Something's come on in a hurry and you haven't had time to think about it and you, you just, you know, <laughs> you just go for it. Um, I've, I've been in that position once or twice and sat down and thought, oh, my God, <laughs> I don't know how that went. And people, all the colleagues have said that was great. And was it? I've got no idea what I said because I just, I was just uh, into it. Um, so I always prefer some, obviously some set piece, set piece speeches you've got to have notes for, but I always prefer not to have notes if possible because, you know, you want to engage with the audience, whether it's parliament or or a mass meeting or a, a small gathering, you, you want to look at people, um, you want to engage. Now, obviously, McGregor was in a different situation, but he would he would quote long tracts of literature in his speeches all by memory um, and, um, you know, quote facts and figures and all sorts of things. Um, very compelling. So he had uh, these two quite controversial views at the time, uh, of Federation, that... Uh, women should be allowed the vote and that Parliament shouldn't start with the Lord's Prayer. Do you think he would have imagined that 120 years later, uh, the first of those would be uncontroversial, but the second would remain controversial? No, I don't, I don't think, he would. I think he would have been surprised by that. Yeah, he was, um, he was a devout Christian, but he believed in the separation of church and state uh, and believed it passionately. And he one of his first speeches in the Senate was arguing that the Senate should not begin with the Lord's Prayer because it was an affront to the separation of church and state. Um, and, uh, yes, he held some um, quite strong... I mean, votes for women was, was controversial at the time, although it did, of course, pass. But 
He was also a, a Republican, um, which even for a Labor Party politician at the time was a bit out there. He was against appeals to the Privy Council. He was an ardent, you know, nationalist in a, in a good sense of the patriot, you know, ardent patriot, even though he was born in Scotland. He was an Australian patriot. Uh, didn't believe in in um, glorifying the office of Governor General. And the Governor General used to wear that uniform with all the all the braid and he hated hated all that and campaigned against um against all that and against the prayer in parliament he was a teetotaler because he's of his, his of his religion um but he was um yeah very strong in his view about uh, separation of church and state and had you know some quite strongly held views like that so then uh, you move on to Lillian Locke, the Labor suffragist. And as you point out, what's interesting about Lillian is she uh, takes a different approach to Vita Goldstein. Uh, Locke believes that the road to suffrage is within the Labor Party. Um, but you, you sort of, I feel like you might give Vita Goldstein's view short shrift. I mean, isn't there a sense in which uh, Locke is putting all her eggs in one basket? Whereas if, if all that you care about is suffrage, isn't the Vita Goldstein idea of working across parties more likely to, uh, to bring results? I don't know about that, Andrew. I, I mean, Vita Goldstein and Lillian Locke had a different view about the path to parliament for women. Lillian Locke had the view that it was through Labor and Vita Goldstein had the view that no major party was going to put a woman into Parliament and they had to run as an independent. To a degree, they were both right because it took a long time for any woman to get into Parliament. Vita Goldstein ran in 1903 um, and it was you know not until Enid Lyons and Dorothy Tangy that any woman made um, Parliament decades later. Um, it's 49 when they both come in, is it? Yes, yes. Um, no, forty. No, forty-three. Um, so, but Lillian very much had the view. It wasn't so much for her about the pathway to Parliament for women, although she passionately believed women should be in Parliament. She campaigned for women, and I found some very interesting. The was Vita Goldstein gets all the attention for being the first woman to run for Parliament, but there were a number of others, Labor candidates for Parliament, lower mm. for Parliament in that decade, and Lillian would go off campaigning for them. Um, but for Lillian, it was more about the cause. It was about, hang on, we're getting votes for women for a reason, not just to get votes for women, but to improve the lot of women and the lot of society. And therefore, you have to do that in the Labor Party because the Labor Party is the only party that cares about society and the role of women more generally. It's not just about getting some women to Parliament. It's about women's wages. And she argued, actually, that um, getting votes for women would lead to equality of wages. Um, which, you know, she was, um, you know, we, we still don't have equality of wages today, although it's been the law of the land since 1969. Um, so she certainly, she saw it as very much part of a broader social campaign. Um, and that's where she and Vida fell out and they had a big fight. Um, and, of course, when Vida Goldstein ran for the Senate in 1903, Lillian was the secretary of the of the uh, Women's Suffrage Council, which was supporting Vita Goldstein. And the Labor Party executive said to Lillian, you have to resign from the Labor Party or the Women's Suffrage Council because they're supporting an independent candidate and you can't be a member of an organisation that's not supporting Labor. And there was absolutely, it was not a hard decision. Despite her friendship with Vita Goldstein, she said, I'm resigning from the Women's Suffrage Council. I'm Labor, 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 all the way through. And she maintained that loyalty all her life. 
we did um, shake it a few times when we refused to put women up as candidates for safe seats, etc. But she stayed loyal, um, and she very much campaigned for that broad social, that broad social reform. And she saw suffrage as, yeah, probably the most important social reform, but only one of many social reforms. Whereas these other suffragists were just campaigning for suffrage. So one of the common features of these first two uh, people, Gregor McGregor and Lillian Locke, is that they're both uh, uh, part of the temperance movement, uh, which is kind of big at the time. So, you know, King O'Malley makes Canberra dry, um, which we reward him by uh, naming a Canberra pub after him. Uh, what is it about um, temperance at the, uh, in, in, that, in that period? Because, uh, of course, you're also sort of leading into prohibition in the United States. Why are, why are progressives attracted to temperance in this era? Well, funnily enough, Andrew, every one of the subjects of this book, and this was entirely accidental, every one of the subjects was a person of faith. They all had some religious or spiritual part of their political life. We can touch on some of the others. Um, but you're right about temperance um, with both of them. Um, McGregor was a teetotaler, but he was, I mean, I don't think he actually, you know, tried to put his views on others. But Lillian Locke was a member of the temperance movement. Um, and in fact, her husband, um, George Burns, who served in the Tasmanian and Australian parliaments and tried to get into the New South Wales parliament, um, he put his loss of the federal seat of Illawarra down to the temperance, his temperance views. I don't think that's fair. He was, he was voted out in a Labor, you know, Labor lands against us. There was a landslide result against us, so I think he would have lost regardless. Um, but I think te the temperance movement had quite a social justice element to it. It had a very strong female element to it. Um, and for them, I think it was about um, alcohol affecting working-class families and breaking up working-class families and taking the money, you know, costing working-class families money. And so I think they saw, they saw it, certainly saw it through a Christian prism, but they also saw it through a prism of, in some ways, these are my words, not theirs, but capitalism inventing, you know, the concept of commercial alcohol and working-class families paying the cost of it. Um, and so I think they, I think Lillian um, saw that as part of that, again, that broader social movement. Now, she also, her, she changed faiths. Both her, grand, both her father and both of her grandparents were Church of England ministers, Church of England clergy, but she ended up in the Church of Christian Science with Volta, Vita Goldstein, um, which had um, views about temperance and also medical treatment and some other views, but they were very, it was a very pro-women church and it was founded by a woman. Uh, I think that's what led them to it. Um, so I think that's what was going on with the temperance stuff. There was a lot of overlap between suffrage movements, temperance movements, and um, and trade unions. And it is remarkable with uh, some of these early figures too. You mentioned with Lillian Locke's husband, the extent to which they uh, they uh, represent different parts of the country. Uh, the, uh, the the willingness to move around. I'm thinking uh, Lyons does uh, does much the same. Uh, when is that a sort of pre World War Two phenomenon of uh, of people just uh, upping sticks, moving to a different part of the country, and successfully getting elected again? I struggle to think of anyone who's done it in the last couple of decades. No, yeah, that's right, and um, that's particularly the case. With, yeah, with there's not many. There's I think there's a list somewhere I have of MPs who've represented seats in different states. It's a pretty short list. It's you know maybe seven or eight people who've changed seats. Oh. Of course, Billy Hughes. 
represented four different electorates over his time, I think, in two different states. But, um, uh, yeah, I think think that's right. I mean, all these, all these people really, the early ones, moved around a lot. I guess that was also um, a result of them having moved to the United Kingdom, um, particularly uh, McGregor and Dedman, who we'll get to in a moment, um, you know, moved from the United Kingdom. So, therefore, you know, moving around states was not that big a deal if you'd, if you'd got on a ship for six weeks and moved the other side of the world. Um, Lillian was used to moving around because her father was a Church of England minister, so he got moved around from parish to parish a lot, so it wasn't a big deal for her to move. Then she became a Labor Party organiser. She was the first female full-time employee of the Labor Party in her history, and she was employed by the Victorian, what we would now call the Victorian branch, and, and the Victorian Trades Hall. And then she was taken down to Tasmania to campaign in Tasmania, where she met her future husband, who was a member of the Tasmanian House of Assembly. Uh, he lost his, or he, no, he resigned his seat to run for a federal seat, which he lost, and then they got appointed to a union position in Charters Towers, long way from Tasmania to Charters Towers. Um, and then they moved back to New South Wales. I, I think, from what I can gather, you know, I glean from the historical records, I think they moved back to run for a seat because they moved to the Illawarra, where he'd been born in that region. So I assume that they were moving back to go for that seat of Illawarra, which he did win. Um, but yeah, it's a, I, I guess I guess that's right. People were in some senses more mobile then, and it was more accepted to sort of move seats. I mean, Ted Theodore, for example, um, was Queensland Premier, but represented the New South Wales seat in the House of Representatives. T.J. Ryan's exactly the same thing. So um, I guess it was more common then. Yeah. Hmm. So then you've got uh, before we get to Deadman, Frank Tudor, uh, who you describe as a leader for the darkest days. Uh, coming on just after Billy Hughes had uh, ratted on us. Billy Hughes, the uh, only person to have his portrait hanging in both the uh, Labor Party room and the uh, Liberal Party room. Uh, what was it about Frank that drew you to him? Well, I'd always thought that those two leaders, um, Tudor and Charlton, um, you know, had really not received much attention. They were up in our caucus room, but I've got to confess, before I wrote this book, I had trouble remembering which order they were leader in. Um, um, and you and I are both members of the caucus, Andrew. Imagine if we're sitting in the caucus room one day in government and the Prime Minister gets up out of the chair and says, enough of this, and walks out of the caucus. I mean, he, <laughs> he actually resigned the leadership of the Labor Party in a caucus meeting and said, enough of this, and walked out. And a third of the caucus followed him out the door. I mean, you know, <laughs> and you're in government. You know, what are you meant to do? Um well, what they did is turn to Frank Tudor um, and said, well, will you lead us, Frank? Now, he Frank was a good man, um, a very decent man. He was a felt hatter. He, he basically founded the Felt Hatters Union and, you know, again, um, he was a, very much the son of Richmond in, in Melbourne, you know, working-class bastion. He was. I don't think he would... I could find no reference to him ever being regarded as a future leader or himself regarding himself as a future leader. But he was, I think the reason the party turned to him, he was the first minister to resign from the cabinet over conscription. He, others, others did later, but he drew the line in the sand very early and said, I cannot abide by cabinet solidarity if we're pro-conscription. And he you know, did the honourable thing and resigned. So he was on the back bench when the party turned to him to be leader. And I think, I mean, I was, I was drawn to him because of that. And I had the sort of view before I started really researching him and it confirmed, my research confirmed the view 
that it was not inevitable that the Labor Party would survive that split. You know, we were only we were only sixteen years old as a federal party. We were only, you know, from eighteen ninety one to nineteen sixteen, we weren't that much older as a party in total. There was no law to say there shall be a Labor Party. Um, we could have very well ceased to exist when the Prime Minister walked out of the caucus room. And we split, it wasn't just the Hughes-Labor split, we then split again, you know, between supporters of the international workers of the world and opponents and AWU. We were splitting all over the place. And because Hughes left, he actually took, you know, I mean, he took a lot of rat bags with him, but he did take some of that moderate ballast with him as well. So the party moved to the left. Mm. And, you know, there were the elements of the party who wanted the Labor Party in the position of, you know, getting out of World War One and pacifist views, etc., which, of course, you know, for right or for wrong, was electoral poison and may well have seen us cease to exist. And he resisted all that and kept a, while, you know, a, by, by that standards, a very progressive agenda, but also a, a sensible agenda, he, he basically, I think, kept us together um, and kept us alive uh, for the eventual recovery under Scullin. Um, and for that, I think we owe him an enormous debt of gratitude. Um, he lost two elections as leader because Hughes was going around saying Labor Party hates Australia and is not patriotic. I mean, um, as if that wouldn't happen today. Um, and, um, you know, was very effective at it and saying, you know, that we were Fenians and wobblies and we were every... every uh, Every insight you could think of, and it had an effect. And Hughes had the had the um, had the media on his side, but Tudor and Ryan basically ran both anti-conscription referendum campaigns and won both of them. So we owe him for that. But I think more importantly, you know, the Labor Party owes him because we're still here. And a remarkable character in the Tudor chapter is T.J. Ryan, the Queensland Premier. And uh, it's almost as though if you'd wanted, if you'd squeezed in another person, it would have been T.J. Ryan. You talk about the extraordinary moment in 1919 when Caucus voted to invite Ryan to join the federal parliament, which is effectively asking him to come in as leader, by a split vote of 19 to 10. And then two years later, one of them is dead and then the other. Uh, it's a, a phenomenal period. Do you, do you think about what kind of a Prime Minister T.J. Ryan would have been? I think it would have been a good one. Um, I think T.J. Ryan was a, was, was a fine individual. I mean, um, I'm sympathetic to Tudor in writing this chapter, obviously, because in effect, T.J. Ryan versus Tudor was the first leadership challenge in our party's history. He was invited to join a federal caucus um, by a federal conference um, and the caucus, which was clearly a leadership challenge to Tudor. Now, I think you can have a nuanced view about this. I think you can feel very sorry for Tudor being put in this circumstance, right? <laughs> He's a guy who the party turned to and now the party's sort of saying, well, maybe this guy's better. But you can also have the view that, well, TJ Ryan was clearly a very effective politician. He had really, with Tudor, but really in a more dominant way, led the anti-conscription campaign... Tudor's speeches were pretty dry and full of facts and figures, whereas T.J. Ryan was emotive and, you know, get the crowd. In the days when campaigning was mass meetings, right, um, he would get the crowd on their feet. Um, so he was clearly a very charismatic character. Um, so I think they were both had legitimate claims on the, on the Labor Party leadership. Um, but as you, say, as you say, basically they were both exhausted 
and they both died within months of each other. Uh, T.J. Ryan actually first, and then Shooter. Uh, T.J. Ryan died while campaigning in a by-election. Um, he came down with influenza while campaigning in the, I think, Wide Bay by-election. Um, and the party was, you know, shocked to its core by the death of, you know, one of our most effective parliamentarians. And Tudor had been sick for a long time too, and within months he was dead. Um, he was the first leader to die in office, um, first leader of any party, major party, to die in office. And um, so he, uh, so then uh, the party turned to Charlton. Um, but I think T.J. Ryan would have been, would have been an extraordinary. Uh, Lead. And I think, you know, you could argue that he may well have become Prime Minister if he had taken leadership because he was very good at what he did. Yes, when I was reading that uh, discussion, I was struck by an observation that Michael Knight made in an article in the latest issue of the uh, Fabian Review where he said the problem with politics is you have these three jobs that in sporting teams are separated, the best player, the captain and the manager, and in politics we expect one person to do all three. And I was thinking you could you could see T.J. Ryan as being the star player, but you can also see uh, the strength of Tudor in uh, in being an effective manager. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. And so you know, I think they did reach an accommodation, from what I can glean. You know, I don't think there was obviously there was tension between the two of them, but I think they both respected each other, um, and they reached an accommodation about well, Tudor Tudor clearly had. Even though there was a challenge, Tudor managed to hold the leadership after T.J. Ryan entered and there was no formal, when I say there was a challenge, there was a small C challenge, there was no formal vote. T.J. Ryan never nominated against the leadership, uh, for the leadership against um, Tudor. Uh, clearly it was on and clearly T.J. Ryan wanted it. But I think he had too much respect to actually, and it was a different era, I guess, about what was acceptable, but at no point did he walk into the caucus room and say, I'm challenging Tudor for the leadership. It was more a stealth campaign. That's not a criticism. That's just, you know, the way I see it. As I said, I think T.J. Ryan would have been a fine leader and probably more naturally cut out to be leader than Tudor. But you can have the view that Tudor would still have been unfairly treated <laughs> uh, if he had, um, by, you know, by a formal leadership challenge. So if people have uh, questions, do feel free to put them into the chat and I'll uh, come, to, come to those as we go through the conversation. But uh, now moving on to the uh, fourth of your, uh, your Labor people, John Dedman, uh, Minister under Curtin and Chifley, uh, who had some extraordinary achievements but uh, almost revelled in his dullness, Chris. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and John's a particularly interesting factor, a character perhaps for branch members in the ACT because he was had played a big role in the development of the ANU and other Canberra institutions. Um, but, yeah, he was a, he was a Scottish farmer. Um, and uh, what, what I found interesting about... I'd read a little bit about him in the histories of the Curtin and Chifley governments, but never never that much, you know. He's not... He's not you know, you think of the Curtin and Chifley governments, you obviously think of Evatt. Um, you, you might think of Macon... Uh, stab of Jack Beasley, you know, those sorts of personalities. But but Debman was never been up there really as one of the big personalities of the Curtin and Shifley government in my mind in the reading of history. But I, I reached the view pretty quickly looking at him that he was actually the linchpin of the Curtin and Shifley governments. When they had something really tough to do, they turned to him. 
And he didn't care about his personality, his, his popularity, which is why I think one of the reasons why they turned to him. I mean, he must have cared because he's a human being, but, you know, um, he he certainly didn't give any impression of caring. Um, so they made him a minister for, I think it was their formal title was uh, War Industry Production, but he was basically the minister for, you know, getting industry, getting industrial production focused on the war effort because it was a mess under Menzies, to be frank. Uh, the war effort in the economy was just nothing was happening. So he came in and, and did all that, and that made some very difficult decisions and tough decisions. He was basically ordering business around, and he was also ordering consumers around because he, f- that he felt there was a lot of stuff being wasted on um, consumer goods when they should be going to the war effort. So he banned pockets because um, they were a waste of material. He banned tails in shirts. Um, he said there was sh- he, he, he designed a suit. He said that's the only type of suit that can be made in Australia, a men's suit. Um, um, he banned sports pages in the newspapers because they're a waste of print. Banned Sunday newspapers. Um, so, yeah, he uh, talked about... Uh, he didn't mind banning things um, <laughs> for the war effort. He just thought that that was... You know, he knew there were soldiers at the front giving their lives and we could give up Sunday newspapers, was his view. But it led to considerable controversies. Um, but then as the war was being won, and it was clear the war was being won, Chifley handed over the post-war reconstruction portfolio to him and he basically did the hard yards of reconstructing post-war society. And you talked there about uh, the fact that some progressives were in two minds about the establishment of the Australian National University, seeing that as uh, working class kids went to university they would become more conservative. And when I look at the, the work of Tom Piketty, it does seem pretty clear that uh, if you go back into that, those post-war decades, that going to university made you, made you conservative uh, and that they, the conservatives at that stage are picking up the lion's share of the votes from people who, uh, who were tertiary educated. Uh, did that give you any sympathy for the way in which conservatives view universities today? Cause and effect, I think, we have to be careful of. I mean, richer people went to university, so they're probably Tories going in as well as coming out. Um, but, yes, you're right. Um, there was a lot of, to be frank, um, scepticism about tertiary education and Labor Party. We were the party of the working class, and so why would you want to go to university? And if you did go to university, you might end up a Tory. So, I mean, Chifley never thought that, even though he never went to university. Deadman had tried to go to university, but it had discontinued his studies twice, once for World War One and once when he was elected to Parliament. But he clearly understood the, the virtue of tertiary education. I don't think Curtin was... Ever, well, Curtin was sympathetic. But, you know, your Eddie Wards and your others were, were very anti-establishing a university. Uh, why would you want to do that? It's just um, So I, what does it mean for today? Hmm. Um, well, I mean, I think the Labor Party, you know, we, well, well, partly, partly they had a point, okay, because, I mean, I've, I've made the case before with you, Andrew, that, you know, Chifley today, you know, sometimes people ask the question, would Chifley win, win pre-selection? Well, Chifley wouldn't be a train driver today, you know? Chifley would have gone to Charles Sturt University and become a lawyer. Um, and, you know, where would he be today? Well, I reckon he's because because he's Chifley, he would have been a Labor Party member. But you know, he he might have been tempted if he become rich, um, or he might have been tempted by social issues. You know, life's a lot more complicated now. So to that degree, to that degree, I mean, their scepticism was was partially well placed. 
But, of course, Deadman wasn't going to let that get in the way of creating a national institution. Um, he also did other things for education. You know, mass, he, was, he was passionately dedicated to poor kids getting into uni. ANU was just part of that. I mean, he really changed a lot of, lot of other things at universities, particularly used his war powers pretty creatively to do that. Um, got challenged in courts and all sorts of things. But um, he found the whole idea of buying your way in a university a complete anathema. Um, and the ANU was only part of that. Interestingly, Andrew, um, he also had to fight Everett. Everett was coming at it from a different point of view. Everett, of course, you know, who could be who could be more pro-tertiary education than Everett? But Everett was a son of the University of Sydney, and he he took the creation of the ANU as an affront to Sydney, to Australia's premier university, Sydney University. So he wasn't, Everett wasn't too uh, on board for the ANU. Uh, and in fact, I, whether by accident or design, I couldn't quite ascertain, but Deadman took his key cabinet submission to create the ANU to cabinet when Everett was out of town. Um, and I suspect that that was probably not an accident. It is a, a remarkable Canberra, Canberra story and a reminder of the importance of making sure that uh, poor kids have access to university. I mean, the Piketty critique, I think, is, is most powerful with the way in which the French run their higher education system with the uh, uh, elite écoles and uh, the, the massive share of money that goes to the most affluent. Uh, I think we're at our best on higher education policy with creations such as the University of Western Sydney and opening up accessibility to uni universities. So uh, let's dive into the uh, the fifth of your uh, your Labor people, Gertrude Melville, the uh, first woman pre-selected by Labor for the New South Wales Parliament. Uh, we're jumping back now to uh, uh, a period a little before the uh, Curtin and Chifley governments and. Uh, going to, uh, to one of the most controversial governments, the Lang government. So tell us a bit about Gertrude and, and her role in the Lang government. So, yeah, Gertie was the first woman pre-selected, as you said, by the Labor Party for the New South Wales Parliament. She didn't win. She, um, you know, came stone last. Can't remember the percentage, but it was single digits um, uh, in, that, in that election. But that was, um, that was in the 1920s, and then she wasn't... She eventually was pre-selected for the upper house in New South Wales and became the first woman elected to the upper house, but that wasn't until the 1950s. Um, so she was a loyal, loyal soldier through many decades, and she wasn't, to be clear, making the tea and scones. She was a complete factional warrior, and I say that in a good way. You know, she she had to take sides in splits. She, she served the Labor Party through basically every split. You know, she joined in the... In, in World War One, and she served through to her death in the late 50s. So she was there for all the splits, basically. And in my humble opinion, she was on the right side of all the splits. You know, she was loyal um, to the party uh, through conscription, which, you know, most were, uh, particularly in New South Wales, but not all. Um, she was loyal to the party uh, through Lang. So she was pro-chiefly anti-Lang. Now, that was a big call for somebody interested in New South Wales state politics at the time. Lang was completely dominant. Chifley was very much in the minority. You know, we, we, that tends to be forgotten sometimes. Um, Chifley was, was a pariah, an outcast in New South Wales. Lang was dominant, but Gertrude stuck with Chifley all the way through. Uh, and she was, uh, although she was a coming back to faith, although she was quite a devout Catholic from everything I can gather, 
she was loyal through the 50s split. She did not um, join the groupers. Uh, and in fact, I found in the bowels of the New South Wales State Library, I found the minutes of the 1955 Women's Conference, um, which she chaired as chair of the Labor Women's Organising Committee. It's just an extraordinary document. Actually, the minutes and the report to members from the delegates from Broken Hill Branch. Um, so uh, sh this report went through chapter and verse of everything that happened at the Women's Conference, including the groupers turning Gertie's microphone off when they didn't like one of her rulings, um, it was a full-on brawl at the women's conference. It was, you know, just a complete fight between the groupers and the Evert loyalists, and she was completely loyal to Evert. But interestingly, Andrew, because the conference was held on the Queen's birthday long weekend, all the delegates, roses won, groupers and non-groupers, to sing God Save the Queen at the end, which is, um, of course, very important. And uh, she also pushed hard for a uh, woman's pe uh, pension, a widow's pension. Uh, and you uh, you talk about uh, the way in which Lang might not have gotten there without uh, Gertrude's strong advocacy. Yeah, so um, the records are a little scratchy, but from what I can piece together, she and some other Labor women uh, strongly advocated to Lang to bring in a widow's pension and the child endowment, so um, you know support for women. And it had been part of Labor's policy, you know, it was in the policy documents, but it never happened and never been highlighted. Now, Lang always denied that these women ever had any influence over him. But, you know, miraculously, not long after their delegation to him, he gives a big speech about the importance of the widow's pension and the child endowment. So, you know, I think, I think they claimed it, you know, Gertie and her friends claimed credit for it. And I think quite reasonably they claimed credit for it. It eventually became law. Um, uh, Lang claimed it to be the first widow's pension anywhere in the world, which may well be right. Um, and I was, you know, for the time, a very great achievement. So she did that well before she got into Parliament with her friends and colleagues, the female activists in the party. So they have a lot to be proud of there. She's a strong advocate for equal pay, as you note, but another issue that she focuses on, particularly later in her career, is police brutality, which, as we know, was uh, uh, rampant in, uh, in New South Wales. Um, you're a little uh, coy about the extent to which she was taking up as an issue the beatings of gay men by the New South Wales police, although clearly that's an issue that uh, continues you know, right, right through to, uh, to, you know, periods of, uh, of our, our childhood. Uh, was, what, what do you think fired her up most about uh, police brutality? So this is quite an extraordinary episode, which I write about at some length in her chapter, because, so she was eventually put into the New South Wales Upper House. You know, I think, you know, in tribute to her loyalty through all the splits, I don't think she was really expected to make much of a splash in the New South Wales Parliament as the first woman elected. There had been women appointed under the old system, but she was the first woman elected. But so, And she was a very you know, mild-mannered woman. You read all her speeches, they're very polite. She was very strong in her views, but she was always very proper. But one day she rose in the Legislative Council, one evening she rose in the Legislative Council and gave a speech about police brutality, remembering that her party was in government, a long-term Labor government, even in the 50s, had been in, in government for a long time. And she gives a speech about how terrible police brutality is 
Now, this comes, this puts shockwaves through the government. This is a government member talking about police brutality under her government. Um, and I believe she felt that very genuinely um, and very passionately. I also believe, and I write about this, that this wouldn't pass today's standards. You know, she would have been castigated for this today. Her son had been beaten by the police, which she did not disclose. Uh, she disclosed his case and the details of his case without disclosing it was her son. But she also disclosed a number of other cases. It wasn't just her son, but, you know, clearly she had some sort of a conflict here, which by our standards you would have to declare, right, and say, well, you know, I want to declare I have a conflict here, but I still believe this passionately. She didn't do that. But but not many people criticised her of, of, about that at the time. It didn't become much of an issue, which tells me it must have been okay with the standard, parliamentary standards of the day. So she makes this really very strong speech um, against police brutality, which sends shockwaves. And she calls for a Royal Commission into police brutality. And the Premier and the Cabinet go into crisis discussions about how to handle this. And they agree, Premier Carl, who's a very good man, a very good Premier, but they agree not to have a Royal Commission. Basically, the, the Commission, they have, the Commissioner has their confidence. The Commissioner was uh, the first Catholic Commissioner of the New South Wales Police. The, the New South Wales Police had been run by the Masons, um, for decades. Uh, he was the first Catholic commissioner. There's a, a whole separate book, I'm sure it already exists, about Catholics versus Masons and New South Wales Police Force. But, um, but, he, but he did oversee a regime of, frankly, brutality against homosexuals uh, by the police. Um, and that was part of her campaign, but it was about police brutality generally. But anyway, so she calls for a Royal Commission. The government says no. And the wily opposition... Um, Liberal opposition, desperate to get back into office. And the deputy leader at the time, a man who then went by the name of Robin Askin, later later became Sir Robert Askin, but at that point was Robin Askin. Uh, they come up with the idea of moving a motion in the Upper House for a Royal Commission. And she, she gives a speech and says, um, I'm absolutely opposed to police brutality. I, I, I absolutely stand by everything I've said. Um, I think there should be a Royal Commission. But there is one thing one thing I will never do, and that's cross the floor against the Labor Party. And she then voted against the Royal Commission. I mean, that was her, that was her, <laughs> this is why I talk about her as the ultimate loyalist. Um, uh, she was, you know, in a terrible state by then. She'd had to move out of home because of, you know, um, uh, presumably death threats and what have you. Um, and, uh, but she she stuck by both her commitment to police tackling police brutality and calling for action but she would never rat on the Labor Party. So then as your final character, you choose a uh, member of the, uh, of the Whitlam government and you had a cast of big personalities to choose from in the Whitlam government and uh, including some from the left and some from the right. Uh, but instead you chose a non-factional person who uh, I don't think anyone would have regarded as the life of the party. Why Ken, uh, Ken Wright? So Ken Reit. Um... Ken, I chose Ken Reid because I felt, you know, again, that Whitlam government and the personalities in it from Gough, you know, but through Rex Connor and Jim Cairns and all the colour and movement, I wanted to pick somebody who got on with it um, and whom, again, I had heard of and knew a little bit about but hadn't really focused on. And it was actually John, I was talking to John Falkner about this. He said, oh, have a look at Ken Reid. And so I did, and I thought, yes, he's, he's the man for me, um, for this era to choose from. Now, Ken Reed was a polymath, an extraordinary complicated man. 
And I don't think you can underestimate the importance of his years at sea. Uh, he was a merchant seaman. He loved the sea. When, when he was a kid, they called it, his nickname was the Admiral because he used to cut out the shipping notices and put them in his scrapbook. I mean, he just loved the sea. So he went off to sea. So he spent months alone on big tankers, cargo tankers. And that gave him a lot of time to read and to think and to learn things. So uh, one of these shipmates, one of his shipmates, a Scandinavian shipmate, introduced him to classical music one day, played him a record. That was it. He was gone for life. He was a classical music devotee. Um, and I spoke to one of his, one of the few colleagues of his who's still alive, one of his cabinet colleagues, um, and I interviewed him about Ken Reid. And he said, he used to go around to Ken's office for a meeting and he'd turn the, he'd turn the uh, record player down the meeting but he would not turn it off um, there would be classical music playing all day he fell in love with poetry at sea uh, some Indian shipmates introduced him to Buddhism and while he wasn't formally a Buddhist he certainly regarded himself as living in accordance with Buddhism um, he read all the Buddhist tracks um, so he was a deep thinker but he you know jumping forward ended up in Parliament in the Senate um, and ended up as Whitlam's Senate leader. But through the entire Whitlam government, he was agriculture minister. And Whitlam, of course, being a big reforming figure, the conventional wisdom was that he would choose a, a rural MP to be agriculture minister. But Whitlam probably correctly decided that a, a rural minister for agriculture, who inevitably being a Labor MP from a rural seat would be a marginal MP, wouldn't be able to reform, would be too nervous about their electorate. So he picked somebody who didn't know anything about agriculture but it was a strong personality and Ken Reid really reformed. I mean, agriculture had been a country party fiefdom for, you know, um, more than two decades and they'd completely rorted all the funds. So he got in and cleared it all up and did all of that. Um, and, you know, there was one big reform, which was very controversial, superphosphate bounty, which actually Reid didn't support. That was imposed on him by Whitlam and Hayden. But every, all of Reid's actual reforms stood the test of time and weren't undone by by uh, Fraser. But of course, the other interesting thing about Reid, he was one of the few people who would stand up to Gough regularly, which would not have been an easy thing to do until Goffey was wrong. So there was a lot of tension in that relationship as well, which perhaps on this day, on this anniversary, might be your next question, because it was, it was a very key moment in our history uh, where that tension between the two of them had rather significant implications. Yes, yeah, so 46 years ago, uh, why did uh, Whitlam not invite Reid to join him for lunch? I think what you've got to understand about Goff is Goff had an unbelievable contempt for the Senate. Uh, he regarded the Senate as way beneath his dignity to deal with, including Labor senators. <laughs> He regarded it as an affront to democracy that they were unrepresentative before the term unrepresentative swill had been invented. Goff believed it. Um, and he just did not regard it as a serious place. And so when Goff was dismissed at Yarralumla um, at, um, I think, late morning, he then went back to the lodge and had a stake. And then he called down to the lodge from Parliament House his deputy leader, his manager, you know, his leader in the house, Fred Daly, and his chief of staff, and briefly the secretary of prime minister and cabinet, although the secretary of prime minister and cabinet left pretty quickly because he realised he was no longer prime minister. But um, 
So they had a war game session, but nobody told Reet, the Senate leader. Nobody called Reet. And this was before mobile phones and Twitter, so word hadn't spread. And so by the time two o'clock came around and the Senate convened, Reg Withers, the leader in the Senate, leader of the Liberal Party in the Senate, moved to allow supply. And Reet found this very surprising, given that this had been the whole battle for months. And Reet said, great. And, you know, the Labor Party senators all voted for it. And then Reg Withers leant across the dispatch table and said, by the way, you're in opposition. Um, and Reed had no idea what he had done. He had let supply through for a new government. Now, and he never forgave Goff for not telling him. And it was unforgivable not to tell him, you know. Um, unthinkable not to tell his Senate leader that the government had been sacked. And so we'll get somebody to tell him. Um, and what, what did that mean for history? Well, we don't know. But the ramifications could have been significant because of a, a couple of things. Firstly, if you look at Kerr's commissioning of Fraser, Fraser was commissioned on the condition of getting supply. If Fraser couldn't have got supply, Fraser and Kerr were then in a very difficult position. You know, he'd been commissioned to get supply. If the Senate had denied supply, which which could have happened, um, I'm not saying that Fraser would have had to resign because we don't know, but it would have been a lot more complicated for Fraser. And what they probably would have done is, of course, the president of the Senate was Senator Justin O'Byrne, a fellow Tasmanian of Ken Reitz, a Labor senator. I think what would have happened is Reitz and O'Byrne would have quickly conferred and O'Byrne would have left the chair and the Senate wouldn't have been able to sit. And if the Senate didn't sit, they couldn't get supply. Um, and again, that would have at least put a big spanner in Fraser's works and Fraser and Kerr's works. At least would have, you know, if Goff could have come out and said, well, the new government doesn't have supply, I should be recommissioned immediately, you know, as Goff would have done. Um, we'll never know. But, you know, it was it was a pretty big insult to Ken Reitt not to have been told that he was no longer a minister. There is also a sense in reading that uh, Ken Reid chapter that you believe the Whitlam government might have lasted a little longer if it had uh, more ministers of the temperament of Ken Reid and fewer of the temperament of, uh, say, Rex Connor or Jim Cairns. Yeah, I do. I do. I mean, you know, the Whitlam government, which we all love for their great reforms and very important part of Australian political history, but, um, you know, also made mistakes. And I mean, I think, I think if Bill Hayden had been treasurer longer than just the last period. I mean, Bill Hayden was really by far the best treasurer of the Whitlam government. I think if he'd been there longer, and I think if we'd had more sort of steady reforming, I mean, Ken Reid was not a, you know, not a reform coward. He had big reforms, but he was also a pragmatist and he took people with him. I mean, the farmers did, hated the reforms, but loved Ken Reid. And Ken Reid knew nothing about farms. So he, when he became Minister of Agriculture, his staff, his staff um, say that they used to follow him around at farms on his first days as minister and joke, you know, take the piss out of him and say, yeah, minister, you know, the cows are the ones that go moo and the sheep are the ones that go bar. I mean, that was their level of briefing because uh, he had, <laughs> had no idea about agriculture. But he was, he believed in reform. Um, but, it, but, he, but he took the farmers, like he would had very strong dialogue with the, all the farmers groups and they had big differences, but they respected him. Um, and he was also very pragmatic. And he, his pragmatism was a, was a reason for the conflict with Goff because he used to go to Goff and say, this, dismiss, this, this, this constitutional strategy, Goff, where, where does this end? You know, um, we don't have an exit plan. This is going to end badly. 
Now, I mean, whether he's right or, for, or wrong, and, you know, the dismissal did end badly for the government, I mean, Reid's view was we should go to an election and we might lose, but, you know, we'll go out with our heads held high and we'll... Fraser will be a disaster and we'll be back within five or six years. Um, that was his sort of view, um, or that even, or that we should, you know, we should certainly handle it differently than just sort of um, crash or crash through with the Senate. Uh, and only two in the caucus stood up for that view, him and Senator Wielden. Um, he also had a terrible falling out with Gough in opposition over the Iraqi Bath loan of, loans affairs, and Reid was 100% in the right. Um, Reid's view was 100% the correct one. Um, about that, that was a that was a pretty shameful um, episode, and um, Reet called it out, and extraordinarily got up as Senate leader, moved a motion in the caucus about the House of Representatives leader and how terrible he, <laughs> the, the Iraqi loads affair had been dealt with. Again, you and I couldn't imagine that in our caucus. Imagine Penny Wong moving a motion about Anthony Albanese in the caucus. Um, it just doesn't bear thinking about. And then he goes off and becomes Tasmanian opposition leader uh, against the uh, the very popular Robin Gray and uh, finishes his career in uh, some level of obscurity, I guess. But again, having served the party. But first, but but first, but first, importantly, Andrew, having tried to change houses, uh, and I am satisfied entirely in the Labor Party's best interest, not his own. So he gave up the Senate leadership to run uh, for Denison, um, and failed. But he had the view that he was the best candidate to win Denison, and um, uh, he lost it. And then a few years later, the party asked him to go to the state parliament and run for the leadership. So for a final question, um, if I have one critique of the book, it's that there's not enough Bowen in it. And so uh, one of the things I wanted to draw you out on a little is how much we learn about you. I mean, you're a very significant figure in the modern Labor Party. You've uh, served as our pro-term pro leader for a period. You've held a number of senior portfolios in government and opposition. And I guess I wanted to draw you out finally on, on what, we, what we learn about you as a, as a politician from reading the book. Uh, one of the themes that I take from it is the importance for you of uh, gender equality. That, uh, that comes through very powerfully. Uh, the importance of moderation, uh, how important it is to be loyal to the Labor Party and also the principles that should surround Cabinet solidarity. And I'm thinking in particular of your decision in 2013 to stand down from the Cabinet uh, after you had supported Kevin Rudd returning as leader. Now, the, have I captured it right? Are there other strands about how you think about our great party uh, that you felt were, were undercurrents in this book? No, well, that's very, very kind of you, Andrew. And, you know, um, I think that is a fair assessment of my views on all those things. Um, and I, I write this as a historian or, you know, an amateur historian, um, a, 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 a tempting historian. Um, so I, I try not to... Uh, there are my, some of my views in there. Of course, I, I cast judgment on some things, but I try to, I try to you know, do that fairly moderately. Um, but I guess a flavour of what I think about the things comes through. So all that is true, particularly the cabinet solidarity one is very important to me, um, and um, you know that's that that was very clear that that was part of the reason why the Whitlam government fell because they didn't have cabinet solidarity. Also, also interestingly, Chifflin Curtin. I mean, they didn't have cabinet solidarity either, which I found quite extraordinary looking at them. And you know, Deadman actually debated 
or wanted to debate Eddie Ward in a public debate about whether they should join the IMF and World Bank, they're Deadman in favour and Ward against. Can you imagine two cabinet ministers debating each other in a yes and no case? Um, Chifley asked him not to, so he didn't. Um, so that's all true, but I think uh, more, even more than all those things, or alongside those things, um, it really comes to, for me, Andrew, down to tenacity. Um, all these people faced huge challenges and setbacks, and they kept going. And, you know, we tend to gloss over that in history. You know, it all looks pretty smooth in hindsight, right? But it never is, you know, and reform is hard. And you think it's done. You think you're done. You think it's done. It's all too hard, you know. But you come back for more. Um, And all these people did. And so that, if anything, just that's what I think the key central uh, lesson um, labour loyalty, of course, is the underpinning. You know, you, you just you just loyal to labour. That's the underpinning principle, which um, uh, goes unsaid amongst um, under all of it. But you just keep coming back for more. I mean, these guys all all suffered un, uh, you know unthinkable setbacks. Some of them in their personal lives. You know, particularly early ones, there was death and of wives and kids and and terrible things. Um, but political setbacks as well. But they just kept fighting. And I think that's a reminder to us now, to today, you know. Yes, you know, there's plenty of commentary out there about the Labor, but we just keep fighting, you know. Um, and one day we'll get we'll get them, the other side. Um, but more importantly than that, we'll keep fighting for what we believe in. Bruce, thank you very much for a wonderfully stimulating uh, hour-long discussion about Labor people. Uh, we have a uh, discount code which is available to... Uh, uh, anyone who wants to pick up a, a, copy, a copy of your book, uh, the, uh, the code is uh, ACTLABOR20. So uh, just go to the uh, Monash University uh, or Monash Publishing website, uh, put a, pic- a copy of Labour People into, the, uh, into your, uh, your checkout basket, uh, enter the code ACTLABOR20, uh, all uppercase, uh, and uh, you'll receive a 20% discount. Uh, Chris, thanks so much for taking the time to have the conversation tonight. Thanks so much for uh, suggesting it and thanks to your wonderful branch members, True Believers All, uh, for joining us about the story of six True Believers.